0: So that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the whole earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The word of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. So when, uh, when I was in college, uh, one of the ways I enjoyed spending a lot of my, my time was I, I played intramural sports. I went to the University of Pennsylvania here in the city, in in West Philly, uh, and I was a like really eager player coach. Like I, I would write, I would like design plays for my basketball and for like football teams. I'd assemble the teams, and uh, it's like actually one of the, the saddest, most humiliating marks in my not very illustrious athletic career was like my intramural my 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 record as like an intramural player coach was like one in twenty six or like something just absolutely awful like that. And I remember, especially my sophomore year of college, I gathered together a ragtag group of my friends for a ba- intramural basketball team. And all the it was just my friends from my campus ministry I was part of. None of them, I don't think, had ever played basketball competitively at any level before. And it ended up showing, we're, we're all clever. We, our, the name we gave to our intramural basketball team was the Minor Prophets. You know, it's this, this like we're, we're, we're clever Christian group name. And uh, we got blown out every single game that season. And I recall one game where we played, I think it was either the Hillel student groups basketball team, which is a Jewish stu- group on campus, or maybe it was a Jewish fraternities group. I remember we, we like, the, the Christian group played against the Jewish teams groups. So it was like, you know, how about, forget interfaith dialogue. Let's do interfaith basketball. And, uh, And and let me tell you, in this match of Jews versus Gentiles, the Jews won. Uh, They beat us by, I I really think it was like by 60 points. And it was like one of the most like humiliating experiences I've had like in sports. And during the game, I remember wishing that there was like a more advanced mercy rule that could have applied during this game. Uh, The mercy rule, for those of you who who maybe don't spend time around sports, especially, especially in kids sports, uh, or, or, you know, not professional, but lower-level sports, is that when with a mercy rule, the game rules kind of shift or change in order to speed up the end of the game. So, like, in, a, in basketball games or, or, like, Little League baseball games, it's like, you know, or, or, literally, or especially a basketball games, it's like the ball goes out of bounds, but well, the clock just keeps running. It's like, you know, if, if the team's up by, like, 25 points or something like that. Uh, in extreme situations, a mercy rule... Is actually like the umpire or the official will call the game off before it ends. So, like some like little league baseball games, at least me, this when I was a kid. I don't know if it's still the case. It's like if a team's up by 15 runs, it's just like, all right, we're going home. Uh, End of the game. Mercy rule. I I find it really striking that we call this the mercy rule. Uh, It's it's mercy. It's merciful uh, because the official or the rules they. They do something kind and undeserved by not letting the game get as bad as it could possibly be, which it seems to inevitably be going towards that conclusion. And I can tell you, it sure, felt, it sure, sure would have felt merciful for my team, the minor prophets, as we're playing this Jewish student group, if, we, if the game would have been cut off after halftime or the third quarter. It would have felt merciful. In Genesis, we've seen God exercise the mercy rule a few times already. Uh, we, we studied a few months ago the flood. The flood, uh, the flood was, was God exercising the mercy rule. We, in Genesis 6, before the flood, we, we read that, uh, that the, the hearts of man were... The thought of every human heart was only evil continually, is what the Bible says. And God, actually in His mercy, brings the floods to prevent things from getting as bad as they could possibly get. It's the mercy rule. In the passage that we just read today on the Tower of Babel, God does the same thing. By dispersing the people, you you may have seen it, Uh, when God begins talking in in verse, when he says in verse 6, he says, this is only the beginning of what they will do. It's going to get worse. And God brings it to an end. God's doing something merciful here. He's not letting things get as bad as they could be. And normally, I, I think when and this, I think this is true whether you, you'd call yourself a Christian, you've been part of the church for a long time, or if this is all new and unfamiliar to you and you just heard about, you, maybe you're interested in learning more about the faith. Like Usually, episodes like this from Scripture, we don't tend to look upon them as mercy. We tend to view them as punishment. It's God punishing people. And that characterization is not totally wrong. It's not totally wrong. Uh, it's, God is holy and pure, and He exercises perfect justice and wrath towards sin. But I think it's it's helpful to also reframe these as stories of mercy. And in this story, God, in his mercy, he exactly undoes the pride of humanity. And these are gonna those will be my, my two points for you it will be pride and pride undone. So pride. Let's look at these people who, who come to build this city and this tower in verses 1 and 2. The first verse tells us that they have the same language. They speak the same words. This one language it's really the crowning symbol of their unity and their power. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, throughout human history, you know, we have this expression like the lingua franca. Have you ever heard of that? Like it's this, this reference to a, 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 a time when French, particularly lingua franca is, is, is like, is the Latin for the French language. Um, a time when the French language was like the spoken language in royal courts in, in Europe and then across the world. Like, if, like it, it's a la- the language of power. Like, all like there's, there's power in there being one language. And English, by the way, is the language of the world these days. Um, you know, if, if there's a one world language, we're the ones speaking it right now. Um, the, for these people who are, who are here at Babel, their one language is a symbol of their power, and God even, like, acknowledges the power of people being united together, all speaking one language, seeking a common end. God says, nothing that they do in verse 6, nothing that they do, they propose to do, will now be impossible for them. The language is a sign of their, their combined power. Verse 2, we learned that they're, they're coming from the east, and they're settling in the plain of, of Shinar. This, Shinar could be, like, a, another, like, a, similar, like, Next-door language rewording or slight rewording of uh, Sumer. Uh, Sumer was in ancient Mesopotamia. It's one of the cradles of civilization uh, and where one of the first ancient civilizations was born between the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. And um, what do we know about the empires that started there? It's like we we know that uh, the particular, like in the 2200s BC, uh, which is you know, a thousand years even before the, the time that's usually reckoned for like where Mo, when Moses was, was alive. There was a, an, ancient, an ancient empire called Babylon. And if you hear Babylon, you're like, wait a second, Babylon, Babel, that sounds really similar, right? There was an ancient, there was a, an, an ancient empire in, based in the city of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire. In the Babylonian Empire, uh, they were really at the front of what we now call the Bronze Age. And bronze is a material, the way that you make bronze is really expensive. You have to get copper and tin. And smelt them together uh, to make a hard metal. Um, This is before they could get fires hot enough to smelt smelt iron, uh, to make iron weapons. So they had to make bronze. But in order to get copper and tin, the the Babylonian Empire would have had to be strong enough and have uh, the connected networks to be getting copper from Cyprus, uh, which is in the Mediterranean Sea, an island in the Mediterranean Sea, and be getting tin from the mountains of Afghanistan. Uh, which is about 1,000 miles away. They're, those are two are 1,000 miles away from each other, and, ba- and Babylon is like in the middle of them. So we know of this ancient empire that was at least, you know, that had the, the connectedness, the strength, the power to have a trade network that had to bring together these two resources. And it was b- based where? In the plains of Shinar. Uh, this this story in our Bible, it's, it's something of a, it's, a, it's a, a, almost a controversial telling of what happened to, the, to empires such as the Babylon, uh, it's of what happened to this prideful empire. And even we like, even when I think when we hear the name Babylon, even to our day-to-day, Babylon for us, it, it brings connotations of, of decadence, of power, and of pride. It all comes back to this story. What do these people do? Uh, they seem to harness a new technology, technology, and empire and power. These things often go hand in hand when... Technology comes into human hands, we have this impulse, the technology makes us do it, we make the technology do it, both of trying to maximize whatever we value as fast as possible. They have this new technology of burning bricks in such a way that they can build a city and a tower, and a tower greater than any tower that's ever been built before. What do these people want? I'm gonna really dig in here. What do these people want? They have two separate things that they build that reflect their their, their two main desires. They build a city. They build a place to live. Uh, what's the desire for them underneath this? And I'm not making this up. This is right from what they're saying, from their words. Their, their, their desire, they say, is they don't want to be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they build a city. God's command so far in Genesis is he it's, this has happened twice now in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 9. God actually commands people to fill the earth. He commands them to go out, fill the earth, subdue it. So them saying, no, we're going to stay here. We're going to build this city here. It's a, it's a heck no to the command of God and his plan for them to rule over the earth because they think they have something and they see something even better. So instead of filling the earth, they say, let's hunker down. Let's be safe. Let's stick with our own people. Let's have prosperity, comfort, ease, power, influence. And it's easy, you know, talking about this, this, this empire that's toppled. Like, it's easy to talk about them as, you know, like the... I, I think of tyranny and, and pride, but can you see how this desire to hunker down, to be safe, to build a city, how it's actually kind of risk-averse. It's actually not a risk-taking following of, of God's command. It's a risk-averse. God says, go. They say, No. They want to control their situation in such a way that their lives will be easier, more stable, more secure, more controlled. Who needs God when we have such power in numbers, right? And there's a clear contrast with these people in the chapters ahead, and we're going to be studying this in the weeks ahead, with the life of Abram, later renamed Abraham, um, where God tells him to go out from his home and he goes. These people do the opposite. God's saying, go, and they're like, nope, we're here. So what do they desire? To, to boil this down into one word for us, and not wanting to be dispersed over the earth. Uh, these people want safety. They want safety. What else do they desire? They build a, they build a tower. They want to they build something that lasts. What's the, the thing that they desire on their lips? They say, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a thing that will last forever so everyone will know who we are. Let's build it up to the heavens. Their presumption here is like, hey, let's get a fast track to the gods so we can get them to come down and do what we want. Earlier in Genesis, we learned that God's consequence for sin is death. And what these people want to do is they want to deny that consequence. They don't want to... They, they, they want to deny death. That's the one, them wanting their names to last forever is a way for them to try and cheat death. And they want, to, so they want their name to go forever. And the, the contrast in the chapters ahead is with Abram again, where Abram follows God, does what God says, and later, God gives him a name. He, he doesn't seek a name for himself. These people, what do they want to do? They want to have an imprint on the future. They want to have a legacy. They want to make the world a better place. They don't want to be canceled by the generation after them. They want their lives to mean something. To put it in a word, they, what they're seeking after, what they desire, is they want meaning. Right? In these two summary words, they want safety and they want meaning. Um, I, I picked these words, I summarized these words on purpose because... Don't you see that we need, we seek these things too? That you do. That these two, desi- like, don't these two desires for safety and for meaning, don't they feel like the two innermost chambers of the human heart? Safety. What do we want? We just want food. We want a house. We want a well-paying job. We want to have be in a family that loves us. We want a community of friends. We want a good school for our kids. We want a time at the end of the day to just unwind. We want leisurely vacations, actually we want more than a house. We want a future forever house where we will always be rooted. We want safety. Those aren't bad things, right? We also want meaning. We want our parents to accept us. We want our kids to respect us. We want our grandkids to remember us. We want our peers to admire us. We want our jobs to be for something bigger than the paycheck. We want our church to be more you fill in the blank. We want our careers to build something that lasts. We want our spirituality to be about about the truth and not just cultural fluff. We want meaning. These aren't bad things, right? Without safety and meaning, we die. Literally and figuratively. And that's the very thing that these people fear. And I think the very thing that we fear its pride. To think that we can find safety and meaning without God is the greatest evidence of human pride. And this is the frightening lesson of Babel. Over what big things in your life, the things closest in those two innermost chambers of your heart, Safety and meaning. Over what big things are you just blocking God out? And all the desires I just listed, where are you too proud? Where are you too afraid to bring God in, to let the rattling words of God speak? Is it where you live, the question of where you live? Are you letting God speak into your heart's desire to move? Or for the people who, who are like, glad I'm, bringing, I'm, making, I'm saying it that way, let me put, put it this way, way towards you. Are you letting God speak into your heart's desire to stay? But close yourself off from others because it's too risky? Where are you blocking God out? Is it with your money? Is it with your time? Uh, John, uh, our lead pastor, John Alexander. At our congregational meeting, um, right around 10 days ago, he, uh, he, was, he was talking about his, his upcoming uh, uh, his, uh, departure from being our lead pastor. He shared a, a prayer that he's really stuck to for himself and that we've, I've been praying for him and that he, he's invited us to pray for him. Uh, he's, it was, It's something along these lines. It was, into the ocean of God's mercy do I cast my soul. That's my prayer for our church too, by the way. God save us from thinking that we can grasp safety and meaning from any place apart from the hand of God. And God saves these people. He saves them from thinking that they can grasp safety and meaning apart from His hand. Which leads me to my second point, which is pride undone. Uh, The turning point of the passage, of course, is in verse 5. When the Lord comes down, so that they built this tower to be up high in the heavens. It's not high enough that God can just be there. God still has to come down. So it's still a puny tower. Um, and God coming down, on the surface, it seems like this is what they wanted, right? This is why they built this tower. Didn't they want God to come down? But as he comes down, uh, he, they get the exact opposite of what they wanted. He undoes their pride. He undoes the very things that they've grasped for. Uh, the, the language, was, which was the symbol of their power and their unity, their language is divided. And the, the passage in the original language, it plays on words as all these puns. Like the, the, it talks about how the, these people, how they mixed different, they mixed bricks. But then what does God do? He mixes, their, their language becomes mixed. Like the, even the, the very symbols, of, like the very thing that they used to build their power, God mixes, he, like he symbolically mixes up the thing that they used to build the city that they built so that they wouldn't have to be dispersed, they end up being scattered over the face of the earth. It's the exact opposite of what they wanted. There's the safety of their city proves to be an illusion and is left abandoned. They built a tower to have their names remembered for forever. Yet the passage ends in verse 9 with a, a, what their name is. Therefore, their name's Babel. That's the name they get, which means confusion the meaning of their tower proves to be built on quicksand, like a sandcastle built on the beach that's washed away by the tide. Uh, this, this story, this undoing of, of their pride and their power, this story is really meant to be like an ironic mockery of, of the powerful and of empire, those who build mighty kingdoms in this world. Uh, it's, it's ironic because this powerful empire, everything that it wants it ends up going the exact opposite of the way that they intended. So this story, like, and we see, as we see how this pride is undone, it should confront the powerful and comfort the powerless. And I think in some way, each of us, though not in all equal measure, we sit in both of those camps of being among the powerful and being among the powerless. Uh, to the powerful, this story says, if you've built up your corner of creation to benefit yourself in defiance of God's call to love, neighbor, love him and love neighbor, A day will come when your empire will come crashing down, whether you live to see it or not. The Bible says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. and the comfort to the powerless, to take the words of Jesus, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If not in this life, then certainly in the one to come. God topples, this is a story throughout scripture. This is is in the prophets, this is in the New Testament, this is in Revelation, like God topples big, bad empires that defy Him. It's really good news. It's really good news for the little people of history. To end where I started, this is all a mercy. This is all a mercy. God actually intended, He actually intended for peoples to fill the earth, for there to be different languages different nations. He had a plan for scattering the, the peoples, and, he, and he, has to bring that, he has to make sure that his plan happens through his intervention in this passage. But also, God, he had a plan for scattering the nations and each nation having their own unique glories, but he also has a plan for regathering the nations. Um, and curiously, God's way that he plans to regather the nations is the exact opposite of the way that Babel does it. It's in the person of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus do? Safety? Remember that desire of the people of Babel. Seeking not to be dispersed in the earth. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, He took on a body. He took on pain. He took on even death for our sake. That's not safety. He forsook safety. He left it. Jesus cast his soul into the ocean of his Father's mercy more than any of us ever will. What about meaning? That was the other desire, right? Seeking to create a name for yourself. Jesus, Jesus' food was to do the will of his father, the will of the one who sent him. He, will, he lived, willingly lived a life and gave up a life. His life ended with him being scourged like a criminal. The sign that was hung over his cross was a mockery of his name. It said "King of the Jews." It was meant to taunt him. He forfeit his name. And what was the result? What was the result for Jesus, for him giving up his his safety, giving up his meaning and submitting to the Father's will? What was the result? Here's what Philippians 2 says. Remember, what were the people searching for? A name, right? What did Jesus get because he did this? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of the Father. All power is now in his hands. The way up is down. That's what we learn from Jesus. The way up is not the way of Babel. It's not grasping with everything we have after safety and meaning. If you want safety, if you want meaning, you go down. Cast yourself into the mercy of God. Unpry, unpry your fearful fingers from the things which you clutch the tightest, the treasures which you won't let go. Give them to God, as Jesus did. Give them to God, and He will reward you. If not in this life, then in the one to come. If you're here and you're, you're, you're hearing all this, and you're like, this is, "This is all new to me," this talk about Jesus. I want to invite you to find your safety and your meaning in Christ. Does this way not sound better than the way of Babel? Some of you, like, there there are young people in this room, uh, more young people in this room, I think, than we usually have. The older people in this room, they'll tell you, hey, the safety and meaning that this world provides, it passes away. The story's true. The meaning of the world ultimately it amounts to meaninglessness. Not so with Christ. Not so. I invite you to find your meaning and your safety in Him. But I began that by talking about how Christ is going to be the one who regathers the nations. I don't want to lose that thread. How does He regather them? What are the nations? What are the languages? In Acts 2, uh, which is after Jesus has died, risen again, ascended, there's this like anti-Babel event that happens where Jesus' disciples, it's just a few, a few folks gathered in a room in a tiny provincial corner of the Roman Empire. They're praying, and the Holy Spirit descends on them in fire. And they start speaking in languages, other languages that they don't know. And for them, them started, so they, it's a way of God scattering them, right? They're speaking different languages. But for Babel, what was confusion, the dividing of languages, for the early church, it's power. It's calling. It's God calling them out to bring the nations back in, in Christ. It's calling them back into this way of, of Jesus, uh, which is why it's, it's very appropriate, God's timing, uh, that, we're, that our, the event we're having after church today is discussing this book. Mike talked about it. Heal us, Emmanuel, It's because there are leaders at our church who really want to explore how it's been God's plan to scatter the nations And for each of them to bring their unique treasures back to Christ and worship the Father. Jesus' way is the opposite of the way of Babel. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.